This episode of the Internal Comms Podcast is brought to you by my very own Friday Update. Would you like to get a short email from me, never more than five bullet points long, giving you my take on the week's news from across the world of communication? This might be the latest reports, books, podcasts, conferences, campaigns that have caught my eye during the week. I always limit myself to just five nuggets of news so you can read it in record time, but still feel hopefully a little bit more informed, maybe even a little bit more uplifted as you end your week. Now, this is a subscriber-only email, which was initially intended just for colleagues and clients. I don't post this content anywhere else. So you do need to sign up, but that's super easy. Simply go to abcom.co.uk forward slash Friday and just pop in your email address. It's equally easy to unsubscribe at any time. So give it a try. That sign up page again, www.abcom.co.uk forward slash Friday. And thank you very much if you do choose to be a subscriber. Hello and welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Every fortnight, I sit down with leading lights from the world of communication, business and academia to tease out the smart thinking, fresh ideas and new tactics for improving the way we communicate at work. My guest today is Victoria Dew, the founder and CEO of Dewpoint Communications, a firm focused on helping people-powered businesses from high-growth startups to Fortune 50 companies communicate better with their employees every day. I first met Victoria through her work as the Global Past Chair of the International Association of Business Communicators, the IABC. I immediately had a hunch that she might make a great guest on the show, and I'm so glad I listened to that hunch. This conversation turned out to be fantastic. Victoria is really thought-provoking, inspiring and insightful. She started her career in Hollywood, in TV and films, but today has more than 15 years experience in the world of employee comms and engagement. She's a leading voice in our field, particularly in the context of the future of work. We talk here about the wonderful messiness of employing human beings in the workplace and viewing them not as merely extensions of the machinery, but as whole beings. The past broke, says Victoria, but we now have an opportunity to build back better. Listen out for a really powerful argument that Victoria makes for the business imperative of ensuring people are seen, heard, and given the opportunity to thrive. I genuinely loved everything about this conversation and I hope you do too. 
Victoria, I am so delighted to invite you on the Internal Comms podcast. Katie, it is such an honor to be here. I'm so pleased. So thank you for having me. Let's dive straight in. You are talking to us today from Los Angeles, but I know that for more than a decade you worked in New Zealand. I'm just wondering, was there a sort of culture shock when you came back to the States after that? And perhaps more importantly, did that experience for working for a decade in New Zealand, did that shape your approach and thinking to communication? So yes to both questions. It was absolutely a very, very tough culture shock when I came back and absolutely shaped the approach. You know, my first career actually here in Los Angeles was in film and television and ended up in New Zealand really because of the film industry there and et cetera, it took me there. When I got there, wanted to not be in the entertainment industry and restarted my career and uh, was it's Wellington was in Wellington, a very wonderful place to build a communications career. It's a city full of very smart, talented, strategic people. So I was very fortunate things I learned, and I can hear my Kiwi colleagues rolling their eyes at me. But the way I would summarize some of the differences are, you know, New Zealand has always had to fight a talent war because it competes against currencies as well as other companies. So for example, when the pound gets strong, we have brain drain. When the Aussie dollar gets strong, we have brain drain. So because of the mobility of New Zealanders, companies have to fight very hard for for talent. So they're used to that. So very much what we're seeing in this economy now has always been that way there. The other thing is that the employment laws favor the employee, right? Whereas here in the U.S., you can just sort of, you know, fire someone on a Tuesday because you decide you don't like them anymore. And that's not the case there. So to to greatly oversimplify what I would, the way I would characterize it is great people are hard to get. And then you've got to love the ones you're with, right? Right. So the approach to internal communications is much more strategic because it's very clear the business priority and the business case for helping the people that work in your organization to be certainly well-informed, but engaged, empowered, activated, right? And able to do their best work. So I think it's a it's a shift in, in mentality of um, not treating people and employees as semi-disposable. Mm. That was very, very, that was a great culture shock for me when I came back here. This idea that you, that people are just sort of semi-disposable. And I was sort of, I think another culture shock coming to this country was America's actually sort of ironically very Dickensian, you know? <laughs> and, um, and there's a real sort of starkness. You know, when you fall, you fall far. We don't have the safety net here to have in New Zealand, have in the UK. It's, a, it's, it's, it's very different. I personally sometimes question the idea of job security. You know, people are very focused on having the security of paycheck. But when someone can decide that they can take away your ability to take your kid to the doctor because they take away your job and that whole connection to employment and healthcare is very sort of concerning to me for a number of reasons. So there are a number of aspects of culture shock, but the, I think the other thing is the approach to internal communications is much more tactical when I came back, much more about sort of newsletters and emails and uploading things to the internet and a very sort of very difficult to shift people into more strategic approach. To, to internal communications. I've seen that change a lot, but it certainly was a, it certainly was something I struggled with. 
There is so much in that answer, Victoria, that I <laughs> I feel like well, I already need part two as a conversation with you, just to do justice to digging into what you've given us as insight already to that. Before we move on from New Zealand, I just have to mention Jacinda Ardern. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. New Zealand's Prime Minister has been mentioned a few times by my guests for her authentic, empathetic style of leadership, particularly during the pandemic. Being close to that nation, I'm just wondering, do you have any observations of her impact and her communication style? There's a lot to unpack in in that question as well. One of the things I think I would highlight, though, to answer it most simply is we're going to talk a lot about the future of work. And we're in this time where we're looking, really looking at how are we going to be living and working in the next phase of whatever this is? And I really recall that in 2018, when Jacinda Ardern brought her daughter, her baby daughter, to the floor of the UN when she addressed the UN. And actually, as I say it, I'm kind of getting goosebumps. And there's this really iconic photo of her holding her baby or being with her baby sitting on the floor. And you have this image of this working mother right there with her kid. And I look back at that photo, and at the time, it was, if you think about it, right, 2018, you know, a different lifetime ago. And at the time, it was quite radical. And that was the moment where I think the future of work started in America. We've seen this play out through the pandemic, this merging and this normalizing of parenthood in the workplace. Because, of course, in the old days, we talked about, you know, only perhaps half meaning it, bringing your whole self to work. And then your whole work moved into your house, like a house guest that wouldn't leave and stayed (laughs) for two years, you know? And I think back to that image of her and how when we think about it now, how prescient it was um, and how much it in some sense forecast where we are today. Yeah, absolutely. I had one guest that said to me, it's not a work-life balance anymore. Katie, it's a work-life collision, <laughs> but it is that merging of two worlds. Isn't it? But it, it's exciting too. We, we have permission to do things now, and, and especially as we start to figure out what is this next phase, we have permission and this kind of almost mandate, I would say, to really explore what that collision is and what's possible because of it. Mm. Now, I do like to do quite a bit of research on my guests before I interview them. And it was pretty clear to me very early on in researching you and your work that there's a golden thread, I think, that runs through your approach to communication. And it's possibly best summed up by a phrase you've used, which is human-centric businesses do better. And I just wonder if you can elaborate on this thought and particularly what's driving the trend towards organizations becoming more human centric. You know, this is certainly a part of my work and my ethos and what my company is about, which comes from my work in New Zealand, you know, a very egalitarian culture and, and very focused on people. Um, and I would say that what part of my mission is proving that human centric businesses right. do better. I would say pre pandemic, that was quite radical. Yes. In a weird, like, which is sort of weird and annoying to say, but it was a lot, a much bolder statement than it is today. I think the pandemic has really accelerated this trend that we would call looking at human-centric workplaces for some of the reasons I mentioned about, you know, that, you know, mentioned that collision 
of, um, of work and life. So I believe that if you are relying on actual human beings to run your business, right, which is to say you have a business that is not 100% run by machines or robots or AI or <laughs> non-human <laughs> things, right? If you have actual human beings, messy human beings with lives and feelings and dreams and goals, if you're counting on those creatures to run your business, which I believe, I don't know a lot of businesses that are not, um, maybe, you, maybe you've come across them, but I haven't, then it behooves you to enable and to be able to access all of their humanness, right? That what we call whole human all of that messy human, because the best and smartest people, and what I hear a lot of is companies that want to hire the best and smartest people. So let's just assume that that is the kind of human that one is looking to have run their organization. The best and smartest people don't just innovate, create, collaborate, lead nine to five, and then go back into their little boxes like a robot until you go get them the next day, says me. So creating a world of work where people can be their, you know, authentic and air quotes selves, because that word is sort of overused, but not inaccurate. Creating a world where people can be those selves bring, and bring out the best in people. And that is simply better for business than having a company full of people who are trying to behave themselves and look <laughs> good all the time. So like, so you know how when you're staying at someone's house and you're, you know, speaking of house guests and you're paranoid about breaking something, right? Like you're paranoid you're going to like break a glass or something and you're going to be a bad house guest. And because you're nervous, you, of course, you drop a glass or you spill nail polish remover on the dresser or, you know, you break a chair or something happens, right? And I think about that a lot because haven't we actually essentially been living in a world of work that was kind of like that, where we're always uncomfortable. Like, and in this country, you know, that you can get fired on a Tuesday, right? That precariousness. I think a lot about women teetering around offices in high heels, like literally very precarious, you know? And we think about like, how on earth? Like, what a stupid idea, you know? What a bad way to get the best out of people. And then suddenly we ended in this world where we kind of got comfortable in our yoga pants and we could finally breathe. And we discovered we could do really good work and actually breathe and not have our feet hurt all the time and not constantly feel like we were about to spill nail polish remover on the dresser. So, you know, AI, machine learning and robots are getting very, very sophisticated. But at the moment, we, the roles we really need people to do, humans, um, involve some of these traits and attributes that are, we associate with being very human and not, which is not to say that robots and AI won't get very good at these at some point, but for the time being, you know, things like creativity, synthesis, um, empathy, imagination, intuition, strategy, communication, critical thinking. So the jobs of the future are very likely to be about how humans enable technology and how we work alongside it at least for sort of the next 10 to 15 years. And I don't know about you, I really don't dare think longer than 10 to 15 yeah. years. Seems a very long time. Like my, one of my favorite futurists, Bob Johansson, would say the next 10 years is going to be a love story about humans and machines oh. and how we work alongside. So by 2025, machine learning and AI 
um, machines will have eliminated about 85 million jobs around the world, but it will have created 97 million new jobs. And those jobs are not about behaving themselves. And they're not about people being cogs in a machine. They're not about pressing a button or punching a time clock. Those jobs are the ones that are going away. So if you love those jobs, you're going to be in for a rude awakening. These new jobs and what we really need people to do is about analyzing, synthesizing, connecting the dots. Um, it's things like, you know, data analysts and scientists and, um, and uh, digital marketing and strategy and process automation, how we become specialists, right? And how we connect dots and put, take all these kind of mm. very human-y attributes together and make sense of the world and enable technology. So if that's the world that you're building and that's the world of work that we're creating, then really creating a human-centric workplace where those people can, um, can thrive is, I believe, mandatory. And then when we come back to internal communication, you see how creating what I think of a sur surround sound, a mesh of touch points and employee experience and communication is critical to that, um, that helps people to do their best work. That answer just completely typifies why I love doing this show. <laughs> the passion, the insight, the way that you express yourself, that's everything you've said just chimes with me so deeply. And I believe what you're saying very, very sincerely myself. And I think you've painted a picture of the future, which is enormously not only exciting, but somehow better for humanity I think as well, a, work, a future of work that out of the awfulness of the pandemic, which I think has fast forwarded a lot of this, that we might be entering a more humane world of work potentially. So thank you so much for that. Well, I think it's imperative because there is a lot of darkness in the world. And certainly right now, and certainly we're in the middle of, some, of quite a lot of darkness and it's scary, right? A yeah. lot of things are scary and they have been scary and I think they will continue to be. So one of the things that what we look at humanity is, you know, and I say this again, like, what can we do, right? What can we do? And optimism is a radical act because <laughs> it's, and it's active. We have to choose to find this hope and this optimism and move forward and look at what are the levers we have. I believe that business can be a force for good. And a lot of our work and work we do, you know, with our company is about proving that. I believe that we can, in the midst of all of this chaos, create small little pockets of the world in our businesses and our organizations that are a testament to humanity and what we can create. Mm. And the Adam and Trust Barometer certainly would bear that out, actually, that trust is shifting to employers, the media that employers put out to their employees rather than other forms of uh, sources of information, for example. I'm just wondering what a human-centric approach to communication actually looks like when the rubber hits the road, you know, in practice. And I'm guessing really, really knowing your audience and you've described the messiness of, of the audience, which I love that phrase. Can you talk a little bit about how you get under the skin of an audience and really identify who you've got there and how you maybe even segment that audience? You know, audience segmentation is key and internal communications professionals um, have always been good at audience segmentation. But to create really great employee experience, we have to go beyond that. And I think this is an area where we can learn a lot from our marketing colleagues. 
I talk a lot about your EX has to equal your CX, that you can't deliver really great customer experience unless you're delivering really great employee experience. Because eventually, you know, you are what you eat. Eventually, what's going on inside your company is going to show on the outside. We see that in a thousand ways every day, certainly. We ask, and so looking more and more this trend of how we mirror the same level of care, specificity, attention to detail and segmentation and touch points and a customer journey, the same way that we mirror that internally. Our profession hasn't traditionally been as sophisticated in the approach because we've never really been asked. Um, Sometimes we have been. The more we can use some of the same approaches to customer experience internally, things like design thinking principles, um, how we can understand and leverage the complete employee life cycle, how we can do more employee journey mapping, more personas all the way through an employee's journey with us. The better we can understand, finally segment those avatars, those personas, um, demographics, psychographics, um, their pain mm. points, desires, drivers, the better we can help connect them and deliver that employee experience that meets them exactly where they are, helps them to perform encourages them to stay and even advocate for the organization, the better off we'll be. Now, the reasons why we haven't done this traditionally is because if you think about it and that legacy approach to employees have to do what we tell them. Yeah. So we give them a paycheck. So we just will tell them what to do and then they'll do it. Versus the way we approach customers, which is building that relationship with them and really meeting them where they are in the moment in terms of looking at purchase decisions, right? Building that know, like, and trust, influencing behaviors, and looking at how we, how we can help them and get close to them so that they purchase and then purchase mm. again and remain loyal because it's permission-based. They don't have to buy from us. They could buy from someone else versus internally, we've never done that. We've never asked for permission. We've always just assumed that, go back to the EVP, that give and that get, that what we get is compliance based on Mm. this exchange for this paycheck. And that approach is obviously not working anymore. It probably never really did. But if you want to get the best of people, and sometimes I always bristle when people talk about it as internal marketing or internal PR, because really we're asking people to run our businesses. We're trusting these people. It's not a customer. It's not a transaction. We're trusting these humans to run our businesses, to act on our behalf, to lead others, to lead themselves, right? Um, mm. And others and to stay and do all these things. It's a lot more complicated and important a relationship than mm. even that of our customers. Mm. I completely agree with you that I, I, I'm seeing more clients become much more interested in more finely tuned segmentation, properly thought through personas, not just based on, you know, fairly rudimentary demographics, but as you say, psychographics, something a bit deeper. But also there's this, I've always thought anyway, the difference between an employee and a customer is that employees see under the hood, you know, they see behind the curtain. So when you target them, there is a degree of honesty and authenticity that you just have to have because they know what's really going on. And now you can argue, I guess, that the walls of all organisations are becoming more transparent. So therefore, you can't really fool customers either, but you definitely can't fool employees. So meeting them where they are, I guess, becomes even more important when looked through 
that lens. We're counting on these people to do quite a lot, right? And that comes back to what I mentioned about, you know, these messy humans and these, you know, exquisite humans. The more that we can draw out the very best in them and enable and empower them and activate them, the better our businesses, the better and stronger our businesses are going to be. You recently contributed to an article on LinkedIn about internal communications predictions for this year, 2022. And you wrote links in the show notes, of course, listeners, you wrote, listening is the new talking. And I've also heard you use the phrase analog listening. What does this look like in practice? So when you say analog listening, what do you mean? What does it look like in practice? So one of the other huge aspects of human-centric internal communication is obviously, as you say, listening. And communication professionals obviously know what I mean when we talk about symmetrical two-way communication. When you stop to think about it, though, it's actually pretty radical and rare for an organization to work that way. So two-way symmetrical communication that like messages are, and <laughs> people are sitting down, messages are coming down and going up and that it is balanced, right? Sometimes I recommend for clients who I call a two-way, ask me anything. Employees can ask a leader the question, and then the leader can ask the employees a question so that you have this, what is actually called a dialogue or a conversation, which is like quite radical, I realize. Part of this is this idea of communicating with and not just to employees. And we certainly saw this during the pandemic, you know, when we first did this research in 2020 and I asked about voice of the employee, people would say, yeah, we're doing a lot of surveys. Um, We're doing pulse surveys. We're doing, yeah, we're doing surveys. And we also know there's some really cool HR tech there that says, talks about being a listening platform and some really cool ways that we can do more and kind of analyze more data and get more employee sentiment. And that's really wonderful, right? Because it is this idea of listening is becoming more sophisticated. However, what I mean by analog listening is, again, how people are sitting down, actually having conversations with people. (laughs) So we do a lot of, lot of listening work. And it's one of those things, you know, with our clients, one of those things, honestly, it's often easier to do from the outside because it's easier to sometimes have these conversations with an objective third party. So for example, examples of analog listening would be certainly focus groups, but personally, I love employee roundtables because where focus groups um, often give people the opportunity to tell you what's wrong or what they don't like. Mm. Roundtables are a very constructive way to bring a cross-functional group together for a facilitated conversation around solving a specific problem or co-creating solutions which is very helpful in terms of activating people and moving them out of this complaining aspect or telling you what's not working Mm. and actually asking them to help come up with what are the levers that we have? What can I do? What can we do? What do we have available? We can't change everything, but what in our, in our personally, can we contribute to improve the situation in our teams as managers, right? So, and that is what we're acting people is, you know, shifting people out of being disempowered and this disempowered cog in the machine to an empowered professional with agency. Mm. And that is better for everyone because of course, the more, the more agency you feel that you have in your, in your role, your substantive role at work, 
of course, that extends to how you are in your personal life, right? Um, and so it becomes this virtuous circle. So when issues are surfaced through listening, that also means that organizations truly are beholden to make good on the promise of listening, of the listen, right? So don't waste people's time listening and asking them a bunch of questions and pulling them away from their jobs and acting like you care enough to have that conversation with them if you're not actually going to follow through. You know, back to EVP, this is one of the things is that action plan because when you go to find out and do that consultation, you'll find out a lot of things that are not ideal in your organization. Part of the promise there is to look at, all right, well, these are some things we have to, you know, after we have this EVP, part of making good on that social contract is looking at some of those issues that have, have come up. We see very clearly these days what happens when organizations fall down on this promise. We see it in quit rates. We see it in this trend of, you know, quit talk. I don't know if you've ever gone down the rabbit hole of watching quit talks. No. Um, TikTok videos about people quitting. Wow. And they'll tell you exactly why they quit that employer in quite a lot of detail. So it's when people quit, they're not quiet about it. Wow. You know, we've certainly see, I don't know if you've watched it, seen on you know, LinkedIn, former employees of better.com, right? Who will tell you very clearly what their experience of that was. Um, we see it in walkout strikes, employee activism, whistleblowing. So this idea that we can back to seeing things under the, you know, under the covers, what's happening inside. If we fall down on that promise that we make to people, it will become an external issue, right? Mm. Um, and so it's important. Listening is the new talking and action is the new listing. So much in that answer has got me thinking. It sort of threads back to what you said earlier about the whole human. And if you go to the workforce and say, you've identified a problem, and we're also going to ask you to help us solve it because we, we want your whole brain, not the brain that just we employ for this task that you do day to day, but we think you've got ideas, perspectives, opinions beyond that. And we want to access all of your brain to help solve other problems. That's a compliment. And I think a lot of employees would jump. We know that they jump at the chance. The only reason, as you say, they tend to hold back after a while is when they keep saying, well, I've told you, but you're not listening and you're not doing anything as a result, I guess. And as you say, that's why what happens next has to be so important. I'm like, I don't I do wonder sometimes whether it's simply enough sometimes to say these are the issues and we're working through a response on these, but we want you to know that we've listened. I mean, is that is that good enough? What have you seen, I suppose? I, I guess that would be a better question of how organisations can go back to people to just reassure them that their input has been properly listened to and appreciated. I think so much of it comes to goodwill, down to goodwill, right? And trust. And which also speaks to psychological safety right. Right? and trust in the workplace. You know, you can buy yourself some time by acknowledging that you've listened but if people don't see action, they, it, you are on borrowed You're time. You're on borrowed time. Truly. Yeah. And one of the things I think, though, for internal communications professionals is sometimes I think we miss a trick because very often we're doing things, we're doing a lot of things that are action. We just sometimes forget to tell the humans 
that, that we, we forget to connect the dots for them to say, hey, you said this over here and we heard this and this thing is happening over here, this other, right, which may seem disconnected if we don't tell them, like, you mentioned that that some of the ch- issues, like, for example, don't get me started on open enrollment benefits or open enrollment in this country because open enrollment is a huge, it's been so operationalized, is a huge missed opportunity for to tell a culture story, right? So you told us that this was an issue over um, here, your childcare or the way your health insurance is structured or something like that. Well, open enrollment period is is coming up. And so um, we've made some changes to the way packages, you know, benefits are. We're going to sit down with you. We're not just going to send out a bunch of things or do a quick webinar, right? But we want to talk to you about why you said this. You said we did. You said we did, right? And always making that connection of of joining that those dots. So we've made some really important changes that are in response to what you said you was important to you. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that they see that action. But very often there's things that are going on where we can draw that, you know, thread through and we miss it. Yeah. Um, because we're not, because we're not thinking strategically, because we're not looking at all the opportunities. Maybe it's my background in Hollywood, you know, in Hollywood, we often talk about, studios talk about tentpole events or tentpole features, right? Which is the, this idea that you have some very key, like big marquee movies, right? Throughout the year that, your whole brand and your whole kind of narrative and your um, revenue or target is a whole sort of structure, a strategic structure of the way films are released in the old days. But they, they we call them temple events because they hold they hold everything up and everything else is connected to them. I think sometimes we miss the opportunity to look strategically at that whole year and look at all the pieces that we have of the story that we want to tell and that we want people to understand and the experience we want to create for them. We don't link them up for people and everything feels disjointed. Such a good point. And I think that's why I mean, we've certainly noticed a lot more interest in, in message frameworks. So a one page message framework that says, this is the vision, you know, this is the purpose, however organisations want to articulate that. And essentially there are four or five supporting messages that underpin that and underneath that, there might be a series of initiatives, as you say, all over the organisations at different stages in different departments. But that enables you to identify those, make the link up the chain directly to the purpose or the vision. But you can't get there unless you start with a clear message framework. I agree with you. And same with EVP. What I what I interpret it as is this desire to sort of this, this desire to manage chaos. You know, we hear... We need a way to wrap our arms around this complexity. And it's this, and that's another, I think, really critical role for the internal communications professional is we can hold the complexity. We are naturally good at connecting the dots, at being boundary spanners, at working across the organization, at making different, at holding all of the sort of, not just the complexity, but the rapidly evolving context, mm-hmm. right? In a way that is not natural for many other functions where they excel as being more linear and we are more lateral, right? But you're exactly right. It's like, how do we help organizations to, to, to connect those dots and manage that complexity and feel like we have consistency in a very chaotic environment? And you're right, messaging frameworks, EVP, those are some really great tools to help them. Mm-hmm. 
You're also making me think, though, if the future of work is going to be human centric and all about the benefit of the messiness of the real human, then internal communications pros generally are quite, well, they're people people, aren't they, in general, I think. And so actually that could be a secret weapon when it comes to adding value inside our businesses because we embrace and love and identify with the messiness of humanity, perhaps more than other departments. So actually what we sometimes beat ourselves up about for not being seen as a business strength after all in the brave new world might be something that's incredibly powerful. I often talk about we the people people, right? And, you know, we certainly see, and I see in some of the best contemporary functions, I don't know, you see this breakdown of silos. We have, the, you know, communications professionals, we have HR professionals, which, you know, more and more people in talent or, you know, have other names because HR sometimes doesn't fully express a lot of the sort of strategic ability of a, a truly contemporary function. IT, ops, DEI, all these people, people looking at how we can weave together and create a really um, comprehensive, holistic, human-centric employee experience. I like it. Now, you recently published an insights report. Again, we'll make sure the link is in the show notes. And you interviewed a really diverse range of businesses, business leaders, I should say, from different sectors. They were at different stages of development, different parts of the world. We've already touched on quite a few themes from that report. But one of the things you mentioned is ruthless prioritization. And I often think that strategy is about deciding what you're not going to do. You know, that's the harder part of strategy, isn't it? So what does ruthless prioritization actually look like in practice? This is sort of the paradox of this age, isn't it? There's so much to do. You know, someone in the report said, we have to look at balancing need versus speed and being very clear about what we're going to do and what we're going to ask of people. Pre-pandemic, we'd really gotten used to looking at how we could get the most out of people, right? How we could pull as much juice of energy out of our employees as possible. And there was this pace that had really turned our workers into sort of fast fashion. We've almost been artificially productive for a long time because we never truly reflected the actual cost of human workers. And some of these non-cash costs, like their sanity, <laughs> their family's well-being, their physical and emotional health, their quality of life. You know, we sort of treated employees like that sweater that we buy. You know, it looks pretty good. And it won't last that long, but it's also not that expensive. And But it's actually made in, under not terribly humane circumstances and making it and getting it to us overnight takes a significant toll in the environment. And so it's not actually sustainable. We have an artificially um, low cost of this, you know, sweater, but it actually is quite expensive in other ways that are not visible to us. Mm. I think we've sort of basically been living in that world of fast fashion, you know, and I think about these employees and talk about being semi-disposable, you know, sort of like ocean plastics, mm. right? We have been taking them, using them up and dumping them, you know, mm. in a very unsustainable way. We've seen it, we're seeing it in the quit rates. We're seeing it in this, you know, in people just not, just not putting up with it anymore. And you can say, you know, it's market cyclicality and you can say that it has to do with this, you know, the economy and the strength of the job market, et cetera. 
I think there are some things that have fundamentally shifted in one way or another. We have to stop treating our employees like single-use water bottles. I think the jig is up. Mm-hmm. So to the question about ruthless prioritization and managing burnout, um, one leader that we spoke to talked about this as a critical imperative. And they said that if they had five strategic priorities, her job, she really viewed her job was to um, help her team to focus on the top two, must do what was most important, what, what needed to be done now, the ones that would have the biggest impact that would help them win in the market, the ones that were going to have the biggest ROI, and to focus on those. And the next three were next or not yet. Right. And I remember asking her, I said, can you please make the business case for me for doing less? She said, yeah. And that's that point where she said, yes, we prioritize the ones where, that are going to move the needle. We do the things that are going, that are most urgent and important mm. and are going to have that biggest impact in the business. And we have to, and we have to go through it because if we don't, I won't have any people to do this work mm. at all. So I think that extends back to the way we communicate and back to audience segmentation. Our approach to how we, we talk to people, how we help them to understand priorities, how we engage them and activate them and help them understand where to focus, what's most important, why it's most important, and how they can contribute has to become much more sophisticated. Um, it's not one size fits all. It was never one size fits all, right? But we've got to get better and better at working in finer and finer brushstrokes, much more like we would with customers. And that takes time and it takes resource and it's not fast. Mm-hmm. And this kind of greater care of the way we connect and communicate with people is going to be more resource intensive. We are going to have to make greater investments in really helping people to thrive. I often think back to like, the beginning, I remember the, the first organization, I don't know if you recall this, when the first social media manager that came into a team and you think, I remember thinking, this is crazy. How, a whole person just to do social media, what, what are they going to do all day? Well, and then suddenly they were building out their team and there were many people <laughs> doing social media. And I thought, well, hang on a sec. Is every company in the world going to have to just add all these new jobs? And it seemed like, it seemed radical, right? To suddenly just expand all these few new people. We didn't have this a year ago. Why do we suddenly need it now? And I think we're kind of in that same moment here where we have under, and this came through in the resource, where we, on many organizations say we've under-resourced internal communications. We've under-resourced employee experience. We haven't given this what it really needs to be successful and sustainable. And I think we'll see this shift towards actually properly resourcing the function in a way that is meaningful. Mm. And you've just made such a fantastic argument for us not taking every business priority we're given from our leadership team or our senior stakeholders at face value, but actually trying to get under the skin of all of those 17 priorities, weigh them up, ask questions about them. Is there an order of priority? All of that stuff. It's such a, you, from what you're saying, it's such a valuable task that we can undertake. And I don't know about you. I find, you know, when you're in, in your in-house, these are very challenging conversations right. to have. Um, it makes, can make you, it can make you very, quite unpopular Popular. at times. Mm. 
And I find that it is one of the kind of best parts about being a, a third party coming in and being consultant because very often we can be a true ally to those in-house and help them to have some of these, you know, you know, braver conversations and help set them up for success in a way that is very hard when you're, when you're in, you know, in, in the trenches. And that also, of course, goes back to psychological safety and, you know, but it, it does require bravery. And I think we're in the moment for that. I think your report suggests that startups and those kind of pre-IPO, just, just before they become public listed enterprises, that they're kind of reimagining the employee experience in a slightly different way. They're slightly braver, maybe more agile about how they're looking at their employee experience. Um, I don't know if I'm reading the report right and whether that's a true observation. Is there anything that these younger, more nimble organisations are doing that more established organisations can learn from? It's very interesting. Yeah, I would say I would call them mature startups. So maybe just pre-IPO, maybe post-IPO, you know, a few thousand employees. So they're not little, but they're growing. They've got scale. They've got complexity. But what is different about them is that, especially in the SaaS space, software as a service and in tech spaces, they knew, there's really smart ones, not all, all of them, but smart ones knew from the beginning how hard they were going to have to fight for tech talent. In hot markets, oh. they knew that their success was always going to be linked to being able to get products, you know, it's, it's software engineers, product managers, right? They knew that that was, there was always, they were always going to be dependent on white hot talent that was always going to be in demand, right? So they built themselves and they built their people functions differently. They built them cross-functionally so that you'd have, you know, and I almost don't, I almost don't care what you call people, yes. but you'd have someone ahead of employee experience and communications, and operations, and DEI, and NIT, right, HR, and all those functions work together because, as I said, like creating this seamless mesh, all those roles to play in the touch points that an, experience, an employee experiences every day, right, all the way through the cycle. Mm -hmm. They often would bring in a lot of that marketing expertise, much more, you know, developing personas, journey mapping, um, more roadmaps. They do. They just do. They had a more strategic, cross-functional approach because they were never under the illusion that talent wasn't going to be something they were going to have to fight for to attract and retain. And we see this all the time, of course, and we see it certainly, unfortunately, often with DEI initiatives. A lot of focus on bringing in diverse talent, but then they get in and the experience is nothing like what they were sold, mm. and they turn right around. And that's a very expensive problem to have. So we understand, I see, you know, often you see with these legacy companies and legacies, I guess any company that, you know, didn't exist five, you know, that existed more than five years ago. It's hard for them to set themselves up this way because the mindset's different. They were built differently. Um, the silos are already there. It's very hard to, you know, break them down. And, you know, sometimes I see, and I personally love working with more mature organizations that have never had an internal communications function because they, and they come and they sometimes they're like, oh God, we know we should have done this. We know we've underinvested. We know we should have done this before. I'm like, to be honest, even if you had, we'd have to redo it now anyway, <laughs> right? Same as EVPs. Maybe you had an EVP before. It's actually time to redo it anyway. So, but now we can actually build a contemporary function that's future focused. That's all these things that we're talking about. We don't have to undo, right? Mm. We don't have to turn the oil tanker around. 
We can actually build something um, that's that's fit for purpose and and appropriate for where we are now and is actually going to set you up for success. But the other thing I see a lot with this with with some of those mature startups and and, and SaaS companies, they understand storytelling, the the importance of organizational storytelling. They understand creating sticky relevant content for people. They understand um, the importance of culture and connection, and especially in a remote and or hybrid world. They understand that all that is table stakes. Mm-hmm. Let's switch tack very slightly because I want to touch on the role of, of managers in this new slightly more messy, but more humane world of work. We've still got line managers, I'm sure. You've talked about them as culture carriers. You've also used the phrase listening posts, which I absolutely love. What role can and should managers play in this new emerging world of work? And how, I suppose, can we as IC managers, IC teams, better support managers? It's a really exciting area. I think it's one of the biggest levers to, to pull that we have. You know, if you think about it, managers, you know, I, sometimes I say that small is the new big, right? So if you think about it, a manager leads a small cohort, a small team of people that they know quite well, that they are able to connect with, they understand what they're working on, right? They're very close to this cohort. And that is replicated all over an organization, right? If we take a sort of traditional, you know, structure and hierarchy and we sort of put matrix models aside for a moment. Managers have the ability to certainly in terms of big picture org-wide strategy information localize and contextualize that for their teams. So help them understand what's in this for me. What are you asking me to do? What behaviors and what does this mean in our context for our work, for our team, for our division, for our business unit? So that's one thing where we, especially in a, in a rapidly very, you know, dynamic and rapidly changing um, context is, is very important. If you think about it, also managers are in a position to communicate that information back up and to senior leaders. And they have quite a good, across the organization, they have quite good intelligence and, and understand sentiment and they can help signal, right, mm. where issues may be emerging so that they can be addressed earlier in the piece. Because of that sort of unique position in the organization, when we think about, and I talk a lot about values as behaviors. So when we're talking about culture, what do we want to create and the connection between culture and employee experience, those managers are really well positioned to help their teams, individual, you know, contributors or individuals. Again, back to those behaviors. How, how is what I do every day? How does that align with our values? And how does that help me contribute to the big picture in my understanding of it? So it's interesting because it's like, in some sense, you know, we have this traditional idea of one size fits all and this very sort of top heavy communications model. But in some sense, managers are representative of what we're talking about in terms of much greater segmentation. Mm-hmm. Because across this layer, you have it, but it has to be every information and programs and everything we do has to be really much more specific for different groups so that managers can can activate their employees. In that way, we're creating culture. Sometimes I get the question about like having different cultures across business units and, you know, in regions, et cetera. 
if everything is laddering back up to your values, purpose, strategy, and it is a local, whatever that means, embodiment Mm. of that or representation of that as we interpret it in our context. Mm. So it might look different business unit to business unit, region to region, um, team to team. But if everything is aligned to those values, here's what we said is important and is, a, and is an expression of that, then of course you can have different cultures across the organization that may have different characteristics, but are all actually very much in alignment. That's really, really thought-provoking that actually what you can do with managers is set up the guardrails or sort of paint the picture of the kind of outside of the football pitch. But within that, of course, what's local to you, your geography, the type of work you do, the type of people you employ, whether you're, I don't making this up now, but whether you're a shift worker, for example, or the kinds of customer or client you might be serving. But I can imagine listeners going, goodness me, that's that's actually quite a lot more work. It is quite a lot more work, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. It is. That's what I mean about our role as internal communications professionals, certainly holding the complexity, the nuance, and that's back to those finer brushstrokes, yeah, right? Yeah. It is more work and it requires a more sophisticated approach that, you know, if you're like me, it's very exciting. Yes. Right? Yes. Because you're getting into the detail. I'm trying not to say the word granular here, but it is interesting when you get into the detail. It becomes much more interesting as soon as you dive into the detail, I should say. It, it's craft, isn't it? Yeah. This is where we really get to express our craft. You know, I talk a lot about the importance of being a strategic creative or a creative strategic person, this blend of, you know, and certainly talk about when I think about my first career in Hollywood, I think that a lot of that being able, and story is a great place to practice this. You have this architecture of a story and structure and, you know, can be, you know, movie scripts, it certainly can be formulaic, but it holds, right? Is a skeleton. Mm. And then you put the meat on the bones and you put, and you flesh it out and you create something that's individual and unique and new, but you always have that, the bones or strategy there that you then get to apply your craft, your creativity too. Well, so then if you extend that back into an organization using managers as an example, right, and culture, that will all be, they may all look like kind of different animals, but if the bones are the same and they're all connected to the same thing, then what you have is sort of like a really beautiful, cool zoo, you know? (laughs) (laughs) You've stolen my next question because I was going to ask you about your film background and what you've taken from that that still influences you today in your work. And of course, the craft of storytelling, as you so rightly say, has got to be a huge part of that. You've also written about how we need to create content that doesn't I think you said demand attention, but more that more so invites it. And I think I've also often also thought, you know, the same thought in the sense that employees do not owe us their attention just because we give them a paycheck, but it's something we have to to earn, I guess. Any other reflections on how your background in that craft of filmmaking, how it influences your ability to sort of capture and hold the attention of an audience? You're right. When we think about that permission or that relationship or the respect, I guess that's one Mm. word, of not demanding an employee's attention that it has to be earned in the same way we would earn it from a customer. And 
you know, I think sometimes about that value that we've put on employees. If you think about teachers or daycare workers, these are people that we're entrusting to educate and care for our children. And I, I often think like, I don't even have children, but I often think these people should be making a million dollars a year, right? Like what wouldn't you pay these people who are developing our future leaders? Like what could be more important, right? And yet they do not make a million dollars a year. And similarly with employees, you know, we are asking these people to run our business and to show up every day and play nicely, <laughs> to collaborate and innovate and be creative and not quit and develop themselves professionally and develop a growth mindset, um, to have empathy and to balance their personal and professional lives seamlessly. And apparently we want them to come to the office sometimes. <laughs> and beyond that, we're also asking them to be actually be quite self-actualized and contribute to the big picture if we go right back climbing up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? We're actually asking them to operate all the way up and down that hierarchy of needs. I think sometimes about DEI and, you know, the level of self-awareness and self-management that is really required of non-BIPOC employees to not only make a positive contribution to others' employee experience, but to help dismantle systemic racism and, um, and at a bare minimum, right, to manage their own unconscious biases and you know, being very acutely aware of microaggressions and where they might be diminishing others' experience. Think about that, th this ask that we're asking people to build new muscles, mm -hmm. right? And be vigilant in how they do this every single day. And that is becoming table stakes, right? This is a, a lot, like, this is not a relationship or a dynamic that we can treat casually or that we can just send, that we can just, um, demand of people, mm -hmm. right? This is actually a very sophisticated and mature um, mm -hmm. relationship we want with our people because we really need our workers of the world to be quite evolved human beings. Mm -hmm. These are the people we're running on to count our business. So when you think about that and bring it back to how we communicate and connect with them, it does. It requires that same level of care and attention that we would use ex externally. And then again, that's where it gets fun mm. because how would we do that? And it's not the same for everyone and it requires, again, finer brushstrokes and really like cool creative ways of, of bringing people on this journey. And I often talk about a change journey with no end in sight. Mm. And I think remembering, you know, we need these people a lot more than they need us. Mm. And it's not just because of this talent market. It's because of what we're asking them to be. Mm. So I'm not sure why you wouldn't invest heavily in creating a very powerful connection with them every day. As you're saying that, I'm thinking of the the absolute futility, disrespect and uselessness of, is uselessness a word? Of the all colleague email, you know, the dear colleague email that goes to everybody you know, as you're describing what we want, what we need, what we're demanding from people, sending them something like that just it, it is just so wrong <laughs> um, in the brave new world. Again, switching tack, I, I'd love to ask you a quick reflection on something I've been reading a lot about lately, which is Generation Z or Z. I'm guessing those aged 
around 10 to 25, I know the age bracket tends to vary depending on how people categorise it. But I have a kind of innate wariness, I guess, of generalising about people purely based on their age. So this whole conversation has to be caveated with that, if that's okay, because I just just have that natural aversion to labels. But do you have any reflections on this new cohort of employees that has just entered the workplace? I also share your wariness. I'm fascinated by them and I love kind of studying them and I love studying generational trends and I think it's very interesting to kind of understand what what people are thinking and how they're different. And, you know, we have, you know, lots of generations in the workforce and we think about how we're wanting, how we're wanting people to interact and how they are and how we can leverage that best. You know, I've seen, you know, really great examples of, of boomers and millennials partnering on a project because they bring very different perspectives and they are not at all in competition because they're just generationally, there's a, you know, they're so far removed that it actually can be quite complimentary. And, um, but I share that wariness. And so even though I love studying it, here's what I think one of the biggest ways kind of to both embrace and honor these, the specificity and that people, that there are lots of nuances in generations which is really what might be more helpful is to come back and focus more on psychographics Mm. than demographics. And so go back to personas, it's looking at, you know, the, what are the sort of more nuanced, you know, values, drivers, pain points, desires, dreams, goals, role type actually is interesting Mm. because, you know, very often sometimes the way uh, um, different professions will interpret information differently. So for example, engineers um, communicate very differently and have very different communication needs to marketers, right? Um, Tenure, how long we've been at a company, our career phase or stage, certainly life life stage, right? Um, Communication styles, preferences. So I think there's a whole lot in there that can cross a lot of generations um, and that gives you more wiggle room in terms of in terms of doing it so that when we go and we kind of are studying gen z and reading about you know they they're like this and they're purpose driven or this it asks what it does is calls like okay well here's this new here's this cohort that it says they're very purpose driven and very tech savvy okay so we know that purpose driven tech savvy right is some things are some qualities or some attributes or some psychographics that we need to really be mindful of in our communication Mm. But it doesn't necessarily all have to be attributed to that generation, no. right? I, as you can tell, I'm also very purpose-driven and I'm not Gen Z. Mm. Right? So, um, so I think that can be a helpful way around to both be interested and curious about how people are behaving and responding without painting ourselves into a corner. Mm. Can I just ask you a quick question that sometimes worries me slightly when we're developing personas for clients? And that is that they may end up with, you know, and I think it's often sort of five, six, I think maximum seven personas. I don't think, I don't know whether you've got a a sort of an ideal number, but then I worry that they potentially haven't yet got the channels or the sophistication within their channel mix to then target these personas effectively. Does, does that make sense? And, 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 and can you see that sometimes as being a little bit of a gap? 
I agree. Six, seven personas, you know, I, we prioritize them based on sort of, you know, balancing urgent and important because you can't, you know, you can't cover everyone, right? Um, you get into quite a lot of, you can, you can do quite a disservice by trying to actually represent everyone. So it is, that is the, the tricky needle to thread. But you're right. One of the things that it reveals is where we don't have the channels or the tactics or the ways to communicate with them effectively. That then comes back to the manager. Um, right. Because sometimes the way in that is actually back to analog, right? Is actually more direct um, connection with those manager groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also believe in sort of managers or people too. We can, of course, treat them as a communications channel in some sense, and they are a very good one. At the same time, they are humans who have their, who are trying to figure a lot of stuff out yeah. themselves. And so we always have to treat them both as a sort of, we always have to be mindful of balancing and making sure that we are supporting them and doing their roles and not just kind of, you know, doing the fast fashion kind of. Exactly. <laughs> using them up and spinning them out. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting balance of, of really embracing them in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I don't ask them to make their team really excited about the future of the company and inspired if you haven't yet inspired them in the future of the company. So a priority, make them a priority audience for sure. I think you're absolutely right. Do you have any advice? This is my final question. You're, you're, you've been so wonderful in the way that you've talked about the future of our profession. So I can't not ask you this question. Do you have any advice for an internal comms practitioner who's maybe at that midpoint in their career or at a certain place where they're really keen to step up, sort of take it to the next level? What experience should they be seeking? What skills should they be look at developing further or honing? Certainly, the future is about, is for people who can think really laterally, who understand the business, who understand economics, who um, understand a lot of different aspects of the business and can connect the dots and see where things are related and can create, um, can create a world, right? Where things make sense to people. And so, because let's face it, not a lot makes sense, right? (laughs) We have to create meaning and help people to, to make the world a safe, okay place where we can actually get stuff done because the world is, can be very scary sometimes. So the more we understand, the more curious we are as a curiosity is such a huge imperative and building context, you know, and I do see not to attribute it to generation, you know, generations, but I do see younger generations, millennials and, you know, Gen Z, the, they build context very quickly. I sometimes I think of them like human iPhones, right? Because like one of the things that I learned is like, you can find out how to do anything if you Google it three times and watch a YouTube video. <laughs> and it fills me with confidence. And I sure do tell my 88 year old father that when he asks me how to do things, I'm like, you have Google. Don't ask me. You've got Google. I don't know. I'm just gonna have to Google it. So, you know, but I think that curiosity and that willingness to find things out, to figure out how to do things is, um, is really vital. I think the flip side of that is this is not a time for half measures. Mm. We need to move quickly. We have a lot of really urgent problems in the world that we need to solve. 
we are in this moment and especially, you know, at the moment, at this moment, companies are starting to emerge and, and come in starting to think about returning to the office and what that looks like. And what makes me nervous is there is this default, I guess, for lack of a better word, to go back to the things, the way things were before, because it's what we know, right? And it's what we can see. And we tr- will always try to match what we do next with what has worked in the past, right? That is wrongheaded and it will not work. We are not the same. And more importantly, we have an opportunity now to really reimagine, you know, the the past broke, mm-hmm. right? We really have a chance to reimagine, reset, reinvent, and to make a significant seismic shift and a big leap forward in this world of work. And the role of the internal communications professional is to create context to help make this world real mm-hmm. and to connect and communicate, you know, with people so that they can, um, they can thrive. So I would really encourage people to keep thinking big and keep looking for how we can make radical shifts forward in our organization that organizations that will be better for everyone, but it requires bravery. Thank you for that really inspiring, it was incredibly inspiring kind of picture of the future that we can help create. I hope you've got time for our quick fire questions. What would you do tomorrow if you knew for certain you could not fail? I would go to all those mature startups, those really smart mature startups that understand employee experience, comms, understand. And I would, I would hire all of those people <laughs> to come work for me. I would hire them all away. Those people are not cheap and um, they're extremely talented. And I really do believe they're the future. Um, some of the work they're doing is truly innovative. And um, yeah, I would hire them all and have them come work for me. Sounds great. Any you don't want, send them my way. <laughs> Will do. There won't be any left though, because if I can't fail, there I'm yeah, grabbing them all. all. <laughs> if you could go back in time, what careers advice would you give your younger self? To stop trying to fit in and behave. <laughs> um, stop asking for permission and get busy changing the world because we're running out of time again, that bravery of, you know, that we do see sometimes in, in younger generations and Gen Z millennials, like, you know, I, I saw this, was it a, I think it was a Wall Street Journal podcast the other week, just that said that workers are just not as afraid anymore of their employers. They're not as afraid to tell them that they don't want or what they don't like. Um, and that was very inspiring to me. And so I would, uh, I would want my younger self to be uh, bolder and Mm. not waste time. Mm. Such good advice. How would you complete this sentence? World-class internal communication is? A vital contributor in creating a brilliant world of work in which people can thrive and businesses can be a force for good. Perfect. Cut and paste that, listeners. What book, it doesn't have to be a book, it could be a website, film, um, report, should we all be reading to better understand the world of work, leadership, business strategy? 100%. The book is called The New Leadership Literacies 
by my favorite futurist, Bob Johansson. And he wrote it in 2017, and it talks about really a lot of aspects, but he actually in so many ways predicted so much of what happened. I've used it as a Bible again and again in trying to make sense of the world. He talks about in the future, everything that can be distributed will be distributed. And uh, there's a thousand gems in there. But one of the things he talks a lot about is what will be required of leaders in the future. And this real, a real emphasis on whole human that leaders will need to be very, um, um, certainly smart, but you know, physically strong and mentally strong and psychically strong because of emphasis on you will really need to be able to manage yourself beautifully before you can lead other people and everything that includes, includes and also what it means to be able to, what will be required in to th- thriving in a VUCA world. So VUCA being volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And who we need to be as leaders, and this really is relevant to everyone, in order to be able to manage this complexity and this, you know, uncertainty, ambiguity, um, volatility, that that requires uh, a real steady core mm-hmm. um, as an individual. And so I recommend that um, book to everyone. Mm. So interesting what you've just said, because I had William, Professor William Kahn on the show, show, who basically came up with the concept of personal engagement at work in 1990. And we talked about the future of leaders and the perfect leader being exactly what you've described. And I went through my list, you know, um, happy with complexity, ambiguity, emotion. And he said, you've almost got it right, Katie. You've forgotten one key thing. They've got to be happy with that, first of all, within themselves. As I was like, ah, oh, it's exactly what you've just said. Yeah, really fascinating. So at the end, we give you a billboard for millions to see, and you can put on that billboard anything you like. What is your message on your billboard going to be? I struggle with this question. I'll be, I'll be honest, most of all. You know, what comes to mind is something they say all the time, which is going to sound quite contradictory, which is talk to the humans, right? Which really should be talk with the humans. But what I mean by that is very often when people are doing things or saying things, I'm like, okay, well, did you talk to any humans about that? Like, did you, <laughs> did you talk to the humans before you decided to do that? Did you ask any humans if this was a good idea? But really, we understand it to be talk with the humans. I love it so much. Victoria, this has been a delightful conversation. You talked earlier about our role being creating meaning, but you've created so much meaning and insight for me. Thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. Katie, such a privilege to be with you. Thank you for having me. My thanks to Victoria for a great episode of the Internal Comms Podcast. For all the show notes and the full transcript, head over to abcomabcowm.co.uk forward slash podcasts. You can find this episode there, plus all our previous ones too. If you did enjoy the show, I would be immensely grateful if you could give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It just helps other IC pros out there find our show. We still have some great guests lined up this season, an interesting mix of in-house practitioners, advisors and consultants. So you may want to hit that subscribe button today. All that remains is to say thank you to you for choosing the Internal Comms Podcast. 
and to everyone who has reached out to me recently on Twitter and LinkedIn in commemoration of us reaching over 100,000 downloads. Your feedback means the world to me and I do try to respond to every comment. Thank you also to our lovely producer, John Phillips, our wonderful sound engineer, Stuart Rolls, and the brilliant gang back at AB that make this show possible. So finally, lovely listeners, until we meet again, do stay safe and well. And remember, it's what's inside that counts. <laughs>